Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Sex fly, sex fly, that's a sex fly, flying round my head, it's that kind of guy, sex fly. That is our new theme song. (laughs) Sex fly, sex fly, he's that kind of guy. Whatever, good enough. We can just keep this running. All right, so we're going. Okay, <laughs> fabulous. Love it. Uh, uh, we've just named. There's just been this fly in our room for like over a day. We're calling it our our government fly spy or the sex fly or basically it's. I feel like it's recording all things in this room. So that's the story behind sex fly. Sex fly. <laughs> Do you have a fly in your room that you think might be a government spy that's recording all your actions? It's probably there to record you having illicit sex in case you ever run for office and that's the powers very- that be don't want you to have a chance. That's it. I mean, that uh, has to be it. I mean, there is no other explanation for why a, a fly would insect be in would be in your bedroom no. in the summer when it's no. 95 degrees out. No, 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 no. No. I mean, that is the most reasonable conclusion. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Hi, welcome to Campfire Classics. <laughs> uh, in case you are new to the podcast and couldn't tell from that opening, this is a literature podcast. Literature comedy podcast, let's be real. Literish? It's a literish hee-hee it's podcast. An, it's an illiterature? <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes it Some, feels that way. Sometimes when I have to do like a French accent. Or something like that. It's very illiterature. <laughs> Which won't be an issue this week because you're reading. Heather has chosen a story for me. Yeah. Um, um, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, I've uh, I've had a busy week, so we actually weren't going to be able to record when we're recording um, because I was supposed to be in my second day of tech rehearsal for Comedy of Errors. But we, uh, I woke up this morning to a bunch of messages from the technical director and uh, directors and powers that be, and they were like, Oh, it's definitely going to rain. And so we decided to postpone tech. And uh, so now it didn't rain. <laughs> the joys of outdoor theater. Not a drop of freaking rain. I like to make the joke that it's like, welcome to the Midwest. If you don't like the weather, wait five minutes, it'll change. But that seems to be true a lot of places that I have lived for whatever that whatever reason that that just seems to be a, a weather person um, is basically a gambler of science <laughs> not if you live in san diego that's true <laughs> i don't know there was like there was one time we spent some time in san diego and for like an entire freaking week it rained like the whole time we were there yeah and it was the one week that it <laughs> rained that year and then the rest of the year <laughs> that's probably true but like yeah i mean yes of course there are places that are more like the desert tends to be hot and dry and a little chilly at night. But like in general, and, and this is becoming more and more in the world because of climate change and stuff, the weather is very unpredictable because we're messing it up. So before I get into a tangent of that, of science. Science tangents. With Heather Michelle. <laughs> That's like Mr. Wizard, but like. 
just but really angrily angry. ranting at the at the camera. <laughs> oh, I like that. There should be a Mr. Wizard or Bill Nye the Science Guy or hell, I'd even take like a reading rainbow, but one that is explicit content not directed at kids. It's like the it's like one of those for adults. Yeah. Like like uh, uh, it's like today we're gonna make spaghetti and we're gonna talk about um, solar power. <laughs> this week we are going to distill 160 proof alcohol. So when the world implodes, you, you can, can at least be really drunk. You can drink yourself into a coma or <laughs> set it on fire for a Molotov cocktail, just in case of that apocalyptic raid. Just in case. I wonder. Can, That's what we'll call it. Just in case. Just in case. That can dot, be our dot, new dot. segment starting next week. Science just in case. Science just in case with lots of fucks. Probably lots of fire or drinking. Probably lots of fire. I mean, because you can light alcohol on fire and that's always fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, I once um, lost all the feeling in my hand for a couple of days because we were lighting Bacardi 151 on fire, but we were also drinking Bacardi 151. We were doing the thing where you put your thumb over the the top and tip it over and then light it on fire. But the problem is if you don't give it a tight seal with your thumb, it squirts out all over your hand. So I did that and then hit the lighter and my hand caught on fire. Jamie, if you're listening, (laughs) and I know you are, that's your son. Uh (laughs) I'm like 80% sure she's heard that story before. I'm sure. I mean, like at this point, my parents have heard some pretty Funny stories about myself. That was, that was, uh, I I think that was when I was still living on West 52nd Street. So that was. Oh, you were early 20s. That's the shit you're supposed to be doing. Many moons ago. (laughs) That's the stuff you're supposed to do. We also burned a hole in our table doing that. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, not through the table. It was one of those like, um, Ikea. CVS (laughs) tables that was like. Uh, uh, what you call it, like particle board, but yeah. it had the plastic wood grain on top of it, and yeah. we just we melted a hole through. It's the- like a step below an IKEA table, yeah. like the lowest price IKEA table. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, it didn't take much. I mean, you probably could have taken a magnifying glass at the heat of the day and like burnt a hole in that coffee table. I didn't do that. Wow. When this- I was a kid. Oh no. Uh, at my grandparents' house. <laughs> I found my grandpa's magnifying glass. This was my grandparents in in Minneapolis. And I had seen on TV probably someone try to start a fire with a magnifying glass. And it was summer. And I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. So I took the magnifying glass and I I started using uh, using it to direct sunlight at things. And it was it was. Um, the 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 little spot of light that a magnifying glass delivers is really bright, and I thought it was really cool, and I was using it like a laser pointer, and I ended up laser pointering it at my uh, grandpa's TV guide. <gasps> this was back in the days when you got the paper TV guide, mm-hmm. and it it lit up really bright, and I thought it was super cool, so I just left it there for a second, and it started smoking, and then there was a little flame, so I dropped the magnifying glass and put it out real quick. And then I hid the TV guide under his chair. Oh, no. Well, that's fun. So that was that. Was that. I never did the thing where I burned ants with a magnifying glass. No. But I, I burned holes in my grandpa's TV guide. No. So. Well, that means you're not a psychopath. So nope. that's that's nice to hear. Nope, as just we a little here. fire starter. Great. Um, so I'm kind of loving this whole science talk we're doing. Um because I guess we can kind of get to what we're do we we do here. Great. So if you are a first time listener, because 
if we're doing our job right, every episode is somebody's first episode. Yay. What we do here is read short stories from public domain literature out loud, sight unseen. And this week, Heather has selected an author and short story for me to read to her and, dear listener, you. Uh, and... Along the way, either I will read it very well or very poorly, and either way, we will probably make fun of shit. Oh, absolutely. We that is that is uh, where the comedy comes from, honestly. <laughs> sex fly, sex fly, your <laughs> sex fly. That anyway, I'm not gonna get into Tom Jones right now. That was he. Sex bomb, sex bomb, you're a sex bomb. That's where that... Wow. That, I hate that that song lives in my head so closely that a fly flew by my head right before we started recording, and that's what came out of my mouth. Like, Tom Jones, thanks a lot. Wow. That, that's a that's a pretty deep pull. I'm kind of impressed. I'm pretty... I, I'm upset. <laughs> that space in my brain that could be used for so many more important things. But for some reason, there's a pocket in my brain that goes, Tom Jones, sex bomb, sing it, sing it about a fly. Like, so. Are we ready? We're ready. Let's do it. So this week, mm-hmm. uh, I love that we were talking about science and sex flies because this week... Our author is a science fiction writer. Who had sex with a fly. No, but maybe he wrote, he probably wrote some stories about like the fly because he was a science fiction writer in the 1950s and the 60s. And much like all those other stories we've been finding recently, for some reason, all his works are in public domain. I could not find a specific reason why it's in public domain, but like all of his works are in public domain. And, um, so there is that period of time yeah, in when the 50s when copyright laws were changing over yes. that if things didn't get renewed, if, if they were originally published in the 50s, if things didn't get renewed, they lapsed into public domain. There are also a lot of sort of science fiction and um, like pulp, pulp mystery yes. writers whose works were n- never, never copy- actually yeah. copywritten. Yeah. So that's where we are. Um, and his name is Mac Reynolds. Mac Reynolds. Mac Private Eye. <laughs> Sounds kind of like. Um, so his actual name is Dallas McCord Mac Reynolds. So it was a okay. nickname. And he was born November 11th, 1917. And he's okay. an American science fiction writer. So... His work basically focused on socioeconomic speculative exploring of utopian societies against radical forces. Huh. So, you know, science fiction. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, a lot of times he used a uh, satirical, like, lens for it. Um, he was very popular in the 1950s through the 1970s, and he used many pen names again like our writer a few weeks ago yeah these are the list of his pen names dallas ross mark mallory clark collings dallas rose guy mccord maxine reynolds that's when he published two romance novels so he published (laughs) them under the name of a woman maxine reynolds (laughs) maxine reynolds love it uh Bob Belmont and Todd Harding. All right. But here's a little bit about Mr. 
Mac Reynolds, aka many many others about Miss Maxine. Miss Miss Maxine Reynolds <laughs> didn't even try too hard with that one. No. Just yeah, that's all right. Respect. Yeah, yeah. Got to do what you got to do. So. Reynolds was born in California, and he was the second of four children to Vern LaRue Reynolds and Pauline McCord. So the family moved to Baltimore in 1918, so when he was seven years old, and his father joined the Socialist Labor Party. Fucking commie. (laughs) So from a very early age, Reynolds was raised to accept the tenets of Marxism and socialism. Goddamn leftist whiners. Uh, So this is a quote from Mac uh, at a young age. He said, I was born into a Marxist socialist family. I am the child who, at the age of five or six, said to his parents, Mother, who is comrade Jesus Christ? (laughs) For I had never met anyone in that household who wasn't called comrade. (laughs) Lord. Okay. (laughs) So it was hardcore. They were hardcore. So I just love his comrade, Jesus Christ. Um, in 1935, while he was still in high school, Reynolds himself joined the Socialist Labor Party and became an active advocate of the party's goals. So the following year, he toured the country with his father, giving lectures and speeches um, and became recognized as as quite a significant force in advocating for the Socialist Labor Party. And this is like, while he's still in high school. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, he's a little kid. He's 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 like the youth movement. So after he graduated high school, he uh, did not go to college. He worked as a reporter uh, at the Catskill Morning Star. Uh, He was also the editor of a weekly newspaper from 1939 to 40. And in 1937, he married his first wife, Evelyn Sandal. They had three children named Emil, Laverne, after his dad, and Dallas Mack Jr., (laughs) And I'm like, that third kid got the coolest name by far. Dallas Mack Jr. Yeah. My name's Dallas Mack Jr. I hope he became an actor or something. I should have looked up what happened to that child. Or founded McDonald's. (laughs) Right? Maybe that's him. Who knows? Um, About the right time frame. So from 1940 to 1943, Reynolds actually worked for IBM um, in the San Pedro, California shipyards. And this is where he continued to be actively involved with the Socialist Labor Party. Wait, IBM, like the computer company? Yes, but it used to be before, like they made computers. Before it was a computer company. It was like they uh, did, like uh, uh, not GPS, but like technology on ships, so they could communicate with the shore. It's not like oh, it seems they did like like. like Transport radio. Transport radio. Like, and I'm guessing radio services. Oh, shit. Like, that were high tech for that communication skills. And, and we are right going into World War II here. So he was working for the shipyards. Um, so his dad had run for president twice for the Social Laborist Party. And while he was doing this, he actively campaigned with. Of America? Yes. <laughs> Um, clearly was never elected. Um, and during this time while he was working for IBM in California, he was campaigning for a presidential candidate for the Social Laborist Party uh, for John Aiken in 1940. So, ooh, yeah, there used to be, like, a pretty active, like... <laughs> Aiken's, Aiken's actually a name I know. Oh, you do? Yeah. Cool. I mean, right. like, sort of vaguely in the back yeah. of my brain somewhere, I read a thing yeah. once, but yeah. 
He probably got blacklisted somewhere. Probably. <laughs> um, so he ended up attending for a socialist. This is uh, late, like a leftist socialist. He attended the U.S. Army Marine Officers Cadet School oh, right. and became a Marine uh, and then went to the U.S. Marine Officers School. And he joined the U.S. Army Transportation Corps in 1944 because of his uh, uh, knowledge of technology yeah. and on ships during the war. He was stationed in the Philippines as a ship navigator until 1945. So he returned home from the Marine Corps and learned that his wife had uh, um, been enjoying other people <laughs> for for a while. For a while. Oops. Oops. So. Um, well, that's because those liberals are all yeah, sexually promiscuous. That's, just, that's it. That's it. Um, so they ended up getting divorced and she took all the children with her. <laughs> Because, you know, it was the 40s, so I yeah, guess I mean, mom gets not, the kids no matter what. That's not funny. I'm sorry, It's man. not funny at all, but <laughs> it's like, but, you know, it, I'm sure it, it seemed to work out for everybody. So from 1946 to 1949, he worked uh, as a national organizer for the Socialist Labor Party. And in 1946, he made his first fiction sale. So he's been working for newspapers and technology companies, and now he's like, I think I can do this. So he's in his 30s. Yeah, he's like 35 or something. Yeah, he's in his mid-30s when he's like, okay, I'm going to be a writer. So he made his first sale of the story called What is Courage to Esquire. Later that year, he met a woman who shared his radical politics beliefs. So he met his his soulmate, uh, Helen Jeanette Woolley. So they married in September of 1947, and Jeanette agreed to support Reynolds for two years while he pursued his career as a writer. Awesome. At the time, he was doing detective pulps. So they searched for a place that had low-cost living, so like they could live the most frugally as possible, mm-hmm. and she would like give him that support. I love that. Like honestly, in the 40s, like this woman's like, I'll work. And you like pursue your dream, like it very like that's very modern now. It's like 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 it wasn't like I'll have a baby and stay home, which there's nothing wrong with. But like she was like, oh, you have a passion that you found later in life, go do it. I'll I'll go get a job. <laughs> so I'm like that's cool. So they look for a low cost place to live. So they moved to Taos, New Mexico, uh, where Reynolds met science fiction writers apparently that's where science fiction writers go because it was cheap and uh that's why i guess science fiction takes place in deserts <laughs> yeah well because there's nothing else to do there mm-hmm. yep all you do is stare at rocks and write science fiction and imagine that there's flying things in the air that yeah well and roswell new mexico is where the alien landing was supposed to take place and isn't area After 51 this. like right yes. there Yes, but after this. So he's moved there before yeah. Roswell. <laughs> so it's like he had a premonition. La, la, la. So he or moved. Maybe, maybe the reason the aliens landed at Roswell is because there were all, all the those science fiction writers <laughs> living there. The anyway. aliens were like, oh shit, have you been reading these newspapers? There's some good short stories. Let's go find those people. And then like things went bad and they got caught. Um, or they were not recepted the way they were supposed to be. Yeah. Roswell totally happened, <laughs> I believe. Um, so he met a couple friends there named Walt Sheldon and Frederick Brown. <laughs> um, and Frederick Brown ended up being one of his 
close friends and collaborators, and he convinced Reynolds to shift from writing detective stories to writing science fiction. Yeah, buddy. Welcome to the dark side. So Reynolds' first sale of a science fiction story, Last Warning, uh, also known as The Galactic Ghost, was sold to Planet Stories in June 1949, but was not printed until 1954. He got his money. I guess it's like, okay. Uh, (laughs) But his first published science fiction story was called The Isolationists, and it appeared in Fantastic Adventures in June of 1950. Uh, so his career actually really took off quickly. Like once he, it got going, it yeah, got going. Once he got a few stories published and he found this niche of science fiction that he had kind of been not writing in at all, uh, he uh, he sold eighteen stories alone in nineteen fifty. So his first year he sold like stories, and in nineteen fifty one he published his first novel called "The Case of the Little Green Men." <laughs> Which was a mix of murder mystery and science fiction genre. Yes. I know. I was like, oh, I'm, I want to read that. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Uh, it was an instant classic of science fiction fan-related fiction. So um, so he continued to write. Um, I, I kind of jumped because I, I don't want to spend forever this um, forever on his life because, you know. So he had a pretty successful life. He worked until the 70s um, and continued to have success, explored, as I said, romance novels and all the stuff. So uh, he is probably, if, you, if you're if you a fan of Star Trek, which I know you are, Ken, mm-hmm. and probably many of our, our listeners, like my father are, Reynolds was the first author to write an original novel based upon the 1966 to 1969 NBC television series Star Trek. He wrote the first novelized fan fiction? He did. Yes! I know. This was my this is why I saved that for the last fun fact because I was like that's really cool. So the book was called is called The Mission to Horatius and it was published in 1968. And it was aimed at young readers. So it was a fan fiction based on Star Trek. That's awesome. Yeah. So if if you've heard of Mac Reynolds, that might be why. Because that's probably... Because, like, he was incredibly popular, 50s through the 70s. Like, incredibly popular. Um, but a lot of his works have kind of disappeared to time. Like, a lot of Pulp Fiction does. Yeah. Well, it was It was, it was very much of the time. Of the time. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. So... He very successful life, and he he passed away in uh, January thirtieth, nineteen eighty three. So um, no no drama to report, other than uh, uh, the uh, the young divorce. But other than that, you know, yeah, he just lived in New Mexico, and uh, he actually traveled the world too. I didn't want to say that him and his wife ended up like traveling to like eighteen different countries oh, for like cool. ten years, nice. and he was just writing from those countries. So that's that's uh, Mr. Mac Reynolds, and today you will be reading the story "Unborn Tomorrow" by Mac Reynolds, and it was first published in 1959. All right, let's start this fire. Let's start it. "Unborn Tomorrow" by Mac Lady Maxine Reynolds. <laughs> Oh, it looks like there's a little um, stinger tagline yes, at the there, beginning. I, I noticed that. I did not read it. Unfortunately, 
there was only one thing he could bring back from the wonderful future, and though he didn't want to, nevertheless, he did. Oh no, is this like Back to the Future where he brings back a sports almanac or something? <laughs> like, it just fucks up everything? <laughs> when Doc tells you not to do that, don't do it. Does he go to the future and bring back a copy of Back to the Future? Oh, no. <laughs> now that would be really creepy because this was published in 1959. Right? <laughs> so... Four years after... Doc Brown slips and cracks his head and comes up with the idea yeah. for the flux capacitor. Oh, damn. All right, I'm, I'm invested. Let's do this. All right. Betty looked up from her magazine. She said mildly, you're late. <laughs> Don't yell at me. I feel awful, Simon told her. Well. He sat down at his desk, passed his tongue over his teeth in distaste, groaned, fumbled in a drawer for the aspirin bottle. <laughs> Someone had a rough night. <laughs> he looked over at Betty and said, almost as though reciting, what I need is a vacation. Aw, don't we all? What, Betty said, are you going to use for money? <laughs> Providence, Simon told her while fiddling with the aspirin bottle, will provide. <laughs> This seems like a very 1950s situation. Yeah. Like her name is Betty, first it's Betty of all. and Simon. Betty and Simon. Providence will, will provide. provide. Mm -mm -mm. But before providing vacations, it'd be nice if Providence turned up a missing jewel deal, say. Something where you could deduce that actually the ruby ring had gone down the drain and was caught in the elbow. Something that would net about $50. Simon said in a mournful tone, $50? Why not make it $500? I'm not selfish, Betty said. <laughs> All I want is enough to pay me this week's salary. So it sounds like he's a, a detective or of detective. some kind. Yeah, he's... And, oh, yeah. And she's she's sort of his girl Friday. Like they're married, but or 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 money penny or something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if they're married. Oh, that's true. That's true. He's just come in and sat down and she's looked up from her magazine. Yep. She could be at her desk. Yeah. Oh yeah. I just made this assumption that it's a married couple. Because <laughs> of the way they were talking yeah. to each other. They clearly know each other well. Yeah. But. All right. All right. All right. I like that. Okay. All I want is enough to pay me this week's salary. Money, Simon said. When you took this job, you said it was the romance that appealed to you. There it is. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. I didn't know most sleuthing amounted to snooping around department stores <laughs> to check on the clerks knocking down. Yep. Simon said enigmatically, now it comes. There was a knock. Oh my god, this is like a noir. Yep. This isn't even like it's like very much a like all right, introduced to the characters, yada yada yada. And then there was a knock at the door. So far, it feels very much like the opening scene of the Vicky Slate musical. Yes. The the musical Ken has been writing. Um yes. Very much the so. musical Ken has written and is just looking oh, yeah. for a place to put up a reading of it so he can see if it's any good. If anyone has a theater that wants to put up a noir-style musical... Here we are. 
Betty bounced up with Olympic agility and had the door swinging wide before the knocking was quite completed. Well, damn. Maybe she was at the recent Olympics. He was old, little, and had bug eyes behind pince-nez glasses. His suit was cut in the style of yesteryear, but when a suit costs two or three hundred dollars, you still retain cast, whatever the styling. Simon said unenthusiastically, Good morning, Mr. Oyster. He indicated the client's chair. Sit down, sir. Oh, so he knows who it is. Apparently he was expecting him. All right. (laughs) The client fussed himself with Betty's assistance into the seat, bug-eyed Simon, and said finally, You know my name. That's pretty good. (laughs) Never saw you before in my life. Stop fussing with me, young lady. So we love this guy. This is a curmudgeon. Ad in the phone books says you'll investigate anything. Anything, Simon said. Only one exception. Excellent. Do you believe in time travel? Oh, my God. (laughs) Simon said nothing. Across the room where she had resumed her seat, Betty cleared her throat. (laughs) When Simon continued to say nothing, she ventured, Time travel is impossible. Why? Why? Yes. Why? Betty looked to her boss for assistance. None was forthcoming. (laughs) There ought to be some very quick, positive, definite answer. She said, Well, for one thing, paradox. Suppose you had a time machine and traveled back a hundred years or so and killed your own great-grandfather. Then how could you ever be born? Confounded if I know, the little fellow growled. (laughs) How? Simon said, let's get to the point. What you wanted to see me about. I want to hire you to hunt me up some time travelers, the old boy said. Uh... (laughs) Betty was too far in it now to maintain her proper role of silent secretary. (laughs) Time travelers, she said, (laughs) not very intelligently. The potential client sat more erect, obviously... (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently Betty is leaning forward a little too much. (laughs) Apparently, Betty's a bit of a Betty. So, Betty Betty has the client erect. Which is which is always a good start. It's a good place to negotiate from. It is a good place. They're in a vulnerable position. The potential client sat more erect, obviously, with intent to hold the floor for a time. He well, that's r- nice to take his time. Take yep. his time, yeah. Mm-hmm. He removed his pince-nez glasses and pointed them at Betty. He said, Have you read much science fiction, miss? Some, Betty admitted, then you'll realize that there are a dozen explanations of the paradoxes of time travel. Every writer in the field worth his salt has explained them away. But to get on, it's, it's like my a Doctor Who episode here. <laughs> yeah. 
It's my contention that within a century or so, man will have solved the problems of immortality and eternal youth, and it's also my suspicion that he will eventually be able to travel in time. So convinced am I of these possibilities that I am willing to gamble a portion of my fortune to investigate the presence in our era of such Time travelers. Okay, so rich dude. Maybe that's why he knows his name. Yeah, could He's be. He's got a fortune. Yeah, we still haven't gotten to like how uh, Simon was like, Mr. Oyster, come on in. He's just a modern day, well, modern day for the 50s uh, Sherlock Holmes. Okay, so he, he, yeah. He picked up the clues. He picked up, even though m- mainly what he does is uh, secret shopping at the department yeah. stores. <laughs> Word hasn't quite got around about Simon and Betty yet. <laughs> they're just, they're they're putting in the hours. This could be the big case. This is going to be their big break, unless they screw it up and erase themselves from history. That is true, and it's Mister Monopoly who's hiring. Them. Simon seemed incapable of carrying the ball this morning, so Betty said, "But, <laughs> Mister Oyster, if the future has developed time travel." Why don't we ever meet such travelers? Simon put in a word. The usual explanation, Betty, is that they can't afford to allow the space-time continuum track to be altered if, say, a time traveler returned to a period of 25 years ago and shot Hitler... Then all subsequent history would be changed. In that case, the time traveler himself might never be born. They have to tread mighty carefully. Yeah, think of all the baby boomers that would not have happened if Hitler had never been in power. And by extension, the children and grandchildren and like of all us, of those baby boomers. Like, I yeah. mean, like, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, you do think of that and you're like, baby boom happened because it was the end of the, the this war. massive war. Um, and so everyone was like, let's make babies now. And yeah. that's why... But on top of that, it's like, why there's overpopulation now and all this stuff. But like there's there's this there's been this thing uh, I've seen going around the social medias um, that is something to the effect of everyone talks about how in time travel you have to be really careful because you could step on a frog and accidentally erase your entire family's history. Like the butterfly effect. But nobody thinks about the fact that the tiny actions you take today might have that kind of effect on the future. Yes. So do the thing. Like recycle the bottle or do the thing. Like because yeah, I mean, if you have the instinct to because you have no idea what effect your actions today could have on future events hundreds down of the years road. from now. Like I mean, that's just that's the truth. Like well, we got deep. We got deep in there. This is a comedy podcast. Hey. Uh, no, I love it. I, I, I love time travel. This is very exciting. The usual explanation, Betty, is that they can't afford to allow the space-time continuum track to be altered. If, say, a time traveler returned to a period of 25 years ago and shot Hitler, then all subsequent history would be changed. In that case, the time traveler himself might never be born. They have to tread mighty carefully. Mr. Oyster was pleased. (laughs) I didn't expect you to be so well informed on the subject, young man. Simon shrugged and fumbled again with the aspirin bottle. (laughs) He can't get the child lock open. Yeah. It's like, oh, God, I have such a bad headache. Really rough night last night. 
Mr. Oyster went on. I've been considering the matter for some time, and Simon held up his hand. There's no use prolonging this. As I understand it, you're an elderly gentleman with a considerable fortune, and you realize that thus far nobody has succeeded in taking it with him. Mr. Oyster returned his glasses to their perch, bug-eyed Simon, and then nodded. Simon said, you want... Simon said... (laughs) Oh, is that the first time you picked up on that? That is absolutely the first time is the way you said it. Simon said... Simon said, (laughs) You want to hire me to find a time traveler, and in some manner or other, any manner will do, exhort from him the secret of eternal life and youth, which you figure the future will have discovered. You're willing to pony up a part of this fortune of yours if I can deliver a bona fide time traveler. (laughs) Right. All right, vacation ahead. Betty had been looking from one to the other. Now she said plaintively, But where are you going to find one of these characters, especially if they are interested in keeping hid? The old boy was the center again. I told you I'd been considering it for some time. The Oktoberfest. That's where they'd be. What? He seemed <laughs> elated. Um, <laughs> so apparently... Uh, Time no. travelers just like to get drunk. So they don't come back and shoot German Hitler. Beer. They don't go back and... Uh, because that would have consequences. They don't go back and like... But they do come back to Germany. See their parent, apparently. The Oktoberfest. That's where they'd be. He seemed... Elated. (laughs) Betty and Simon waited. The Oktoberfest, he repeated. The greatest festival the world has ever seen. The carnival. Feria Fiesta to beat them all. Every year, it's held in Munich. There it is. Makes the New Orleans Mardi Gras look like a quilting party. (laughs) He began to swing into the spirit of his description. It originally started in celebration of the wedding of some local prince a century and a half ago, and the Bavarians had such a bang-up time, they've been holding it every year since. The Munich breweries do up a special beer, Marzenbrau, they call it, and each brewery opens a tremendous tent on the fairgrounds, which will hold five thousand customers apiece. Millions of liters of beer are put away. Hundreds of thousands of barbecued chickens. A small herd of oxen are roasted whole over spits. Millions of pairs of Wieswurst, a very (laughs) special sausage. Millions upon millions of pretzels. All right. Simon said, we'll accept it. The Oktoberfest is one whale of a wingding. Simon's like, "Um, I don't give a fuck about these time travelers. I want to go to Oktoberfest. So you're going to pay for me to go to Oktoberfest? I wanted a vacation anyway. This is Disneyland before Disneyland exists. (laughs) (laughs) Like pretzels? It's a a small world. It is, except for just Germany. Just Germany. Uh, Also, 
if the original one is in Munich, as it seems like it is, I have been to Oktoberfest um, with really? my parents when I was like 11 years old. We've, we were in Munich in the fall. It may not have been actual Oktoberfest, but it was fall fest. And like yeah. Oktoberfest, much like um, uh, 4th of July, it's not just a couple. Like it seems to stretch in weeks of either direction now. Um, so Oktoberfest in Munich, what you're saying, Oktoberfest in Munich is like Christmas here. Yes. It's just getting a little bit longer like every year. People start celebrating it three months before. Like you start seeing the decorations and the in, beer in gets fact, brewed and like, yeah. Christmas anymore is being celebrated during Oktoberfest. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Which I think is a sin. You are not allowed to talk about Christmas until at least after Halloween. Fuckers. We'll accept it. The Oktoberfest is one whale of a wingding. Well, the old boy pursued into his subject now. That's where they'd be. Places like Oktoberfest. For one thing, a time traveler wouldn't be conspicuous. At a festival like this, somebody with a strange accent or who didn't know exactly how to wear his clothes correctly or was off the ordinary in any of a dozen other ways wouldn't be noticed. You could be a four-armed space traveler from Mars and you still wouldn't be conspicuous at the Oktoberfest, people would figure they had DTs. <coughs> but why would a time traveler want to go to a, Betty began, why not? <laughs> what better opportunity to study a people than when they are in their cups? If you could go back a few thousand years, the things you would wish to see would be a Roman triumph, perhaps the rites of Dionysus or one of Alexander's orgies. You wouldn't want to wander up and down the streets of, say, Athens while nothing is going on, particularly when you might be revealed as a suspicious character, not being able to speak the language, not knowing how to wear the clothes, and not familiar with the city's layout. He took a deep breath. No, ma'am, you'd have to stick to some great event, both for the sake of actual interest and for protection against being unmasked. This is already one of the best thought-out time travel stories I've ever read. Absolutely. Also, I love that he's like, yeah, if I could time travel, I would go to one. I go to I'd an go to orgy. An orgy. <laughs> We jumped over that, and I'm like, did he just say I would have gone to Alexander the Great's orgies? Like, again, not, if I could, if not I could to the birth travel. of Jesus, not, or like, or the, like, or the, like, the original Buddha, or the beginning of time, or like, or dinosaurs. No, Alexander the Great's orgies. Yeah, although. <laughs> I love it so much. If I were going to go to an orgy. What orgy would you go to, Ken? I would probably try to make sure that I went to an orgy in a region where my family has no historical connection uh -huh. because I don't want to accidentally become my own great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. <laughs> that is fair. That is very, very fair. So I feel like, okay, so all, I would I would have to go to like uh, like 
Asia. Yeah, I, I'd go to go to go to an orgy in China somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, or like or India. India. Ooh, I'd go to like a like a yoga like. <laughs> go to a Buddhist orgy. Buddhist orgy, man. <laughs> I'm just I'm just glad for the first time uh, we have a story that mentioned orgies or sex before me. <laughs> and that's wait, that's not true. I started the episode with a sex fly song. A sex so. fly song. Also, we made an erect joke. Yeah. So, well, at least this one's on the same page as it's, us. It is on the same page. Love it. All right, on to the sex orgy. <clears throat> No, ma'am, you'd stick to some great event, both for the sake of actual interest and for protection against being unmasked. The old boy wound it up. Well, that's the story. What are your rates? The Oktoberfest starts on Friday and continues for 16 days. You can take the plane to Munich, spend a week there, and Simon was shaking his head. Not interested oh as soon as betty had got her jaw back into place she glared unbelievingly at him mr oyster was taken aback himself see here young man i realize this isn't an ordinary assignment however as i said i am willing to risk a considerable portion of my fortune sorry simon said can't be done a hundred dollars a day plus expenses, Mr. Oyster said quietly. I like the fact that you already seem to have some interest and knowledge of the matter. I liked the way you knew my name when I walked in the door. My picture doesn't appear often in the papers. No go, Simon said, uh a sad quality in his voice. A $50,000 bonus if you bring me a time traveler. Out of the question, Simon said. What's happening? But why? <laughs> Betty wailed. <laughs> Betty and I are on the same page in this story. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? Just for laughs, Simon told the two of them sourly, suppose I tell you a funny story. It goes like this. I got a thousand dollars from Mr. Oyster, Simon began, in the way of an advance, and leaving him with Betty, who was making out a receipt, I hustled back to the apartment and packed a bag. Hell, I'd wanted a vacation anyway. This was a natural on the way to Idlewood, I stopped off at the Germany information offices for some tourist literature. It takes roughly three and a half hours to get to Gander from Idlewild. I spent the time planning the fun I was going to have. It takes roughly seven and a half hours from Gander to Shannon, and I spent that time dreaming up material I could put into my reports to Mr. Oyster. I was going to have to give him some kind of report for his money. Time travel yet? What a laugh. Between Shannon and Munich, a faint suspicion began to shimmer in my mind. These statistics I read on the Oktoberfest in Munich tourist pamphlets. Five million people attended annually. Where did five million people come from to attend an overgrown festival in comparatively remote southern Germany? The tourist season is over before September 21st, first day of the gigantic beer bust. 
nor could the Germans account for any such number. Munich itself has a population of less than a million, counting children. And those millions of <laughs> gallons of beer, the hundreds of thousands of chickens, the herds of oxen, who ponied up all the money for such expenditures? How could the average German with his $25 a week salary... In Munich, there was no hotel space available. I went to the Banoff, where they have a hotel service and applied. They put my name down, pocketed the husky bribe, showed me where I could <laughs> check my bag, told me they'd do what they could, and to report back in a few hours. So basically, had, we'll give you a room if someone gets so drunk they can't get home tonight. Yeah, if, and if someone an empty can't room. find their way back. <laughs> But we'll hold your luggage while you're out and about and getting drunk yourself. I had another suspicious twinge. If five million people attended this beer bout, how were they accommodated? Tense. The Thursenweiser, the fairground, was only a few blocks away. I was stiff from the plane ride, so I walked. Apparently, he joined the Mile High Club. Good for yeah, him. Yeah, he was stiff. From, uh, apparently, the uh, flight attendants were very attentive. Well, or not, you know those, or not. You know those flight attendants on Lufthansa. There are seven major brewers in the Munich area, each of them represented by one of the circus-like tents that Mr. Oyster mentioned. Each tent contained benches and tables for about 5,000 persons and from six to 10,000 people pack themselves in, competing for room. In the center is a tremendous bandstand, the musicians all lederhosen clad. The music as Bavarian as any to be found in a Bavarian beer hall. Hundreds of... I don't want to be a chicken, I just want to be a duck, so I shake my butt, quack, 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 quack. Hundreds of peasant-garbed fraulines darted about the tables with quart-sized earthenware mugs, platters of chicken, sausage, kraut, and pretzels. Best day ever. <laughs> I found a... I really want to go to Oktoberfest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I found a place, finally, at a table which had space for 20-odd beer bibbers. <laughs> Odd is right. <laughs> What's a beer bibber? Like uh, a, look it up. a beer bibber? <laughs> beer bibber. You found it, yay. A person who bibs, a drinker, a topper, a tippler. One given to drinking alcoholic beverages too freely. All right. I found a place finally at a table which had space for 20 odd beer bibbers. Odd is right. <laughs> As weird an assortment of Germans and foreign tourists as could have been dreamed up, ranging from a 70 or 80-year-old couple in Bavarian costume to a bald-headed drunk across the table from me. A desperate waitress bearing six mugs of beer in each hand scurried past. They called them masses, by the way, not mugs. The bald-headed character and I both held up a finger and she slid two of the masses over to us and then hustled on. Down the hatch, the other said, <laughs> holding up his mass in toast. To the ladies. 
I told him I'm before sipping. I'm glad he sipping. explained what a mass is called before this guy just said, down the hatch and held his, his masses. <laughs> just drunk, drunk, bald guy standing on a table in Germany holding his giant penis. Up, like, holding his mass and saying, down the down hatch. hatch. So he's very confident and... Um, shockingly open about his sexuality given 1950s Germany. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, uh, uh, we've already mentioned Alexander the Great orgies. What do you think happens at Oktoberfest? Oktoberfest is just a giant beer-drunk orgy. (laughs) Down the hatch, the other said, holding up his mass in toast. (laughs) To the ladies, I told him before sipping. Well, just to th- clarify, just I don't this, swing that way. This one's just for the ladies. <laughs> I said, you know, the tourist pamphlets say this stuff is 18%. Holy That's mother. nonsense. No beer is that strong. Lies. I took a long pull. He looked at me, waiting. I came up. Mistaken, I admitted. A mass or two apiece later, he looked carefully at the name engraved on his earthenware mug. Lowenbrow, he said. (laughs) He took a small notebook from his pocket and a pencil, noted down the word, and returned the things. Time traveler. (laughs) That's a queer pencil you've got there, I told him. German? The new shin, he said. Whoops, sorry, <laughs> shouldn't have said that. Uh, I had never heard of the brand, so I skipped it. Next is the Hofbrau, he said. Next what? Baldy's conversation didn't seem to hang together very well. <laughs> my pilgrimage, he told me. All my life I've been waiting to go back to an Oktoberfest and sample every one of the seven brands of the best beer the world has ever known. I'm only as far as Lowenbrow. I'm afraid I'll never make it. We're absolutely going to Oktoberfest. <laughs> <laughs> I finished my mass. I'll help you, I told him. Very noble endeavor. Name is Simon. Arth, he said. <laughs> Arth! How could you help? I'm still fresh, comparatively. I'll navigate <laughs> you around. There are seven beer tents. Uh, how many have you got through so far? Two. Oh, no. Counting this one. Maybe, maybe, sir, if you want to do all seven, you don't have multiple masses in each tent <laughs> at 18%. I'm just, but he also has 16 days. Yeah. Unless he's only there for a day because he has, he's time traveling. Time I traveling. Guess. Maybe he has to be back by a certain time. It's like Cinderella. Yeah. <laughs> He only has until midnight, and then he turns back into yeah. a guava. His version of Doc Brown has said, you must return to the future or the past by midnight, or you must stay there forever. Damn, where is that kid? <laughs> Two, counting this one, Arth said. <laughs> I looked at him. It's going to be a chore, I said. You've already got a nice edge on... 
Outside, as we made our way to the next tent, the fair looked like every big state fair ever seen, except it was bigger. Games, souvenir stands, sausage stands, rides, sideshows, and people, people, people. The Hofbrau tent was as overflowing as the last, but we managed to find two seats. The band was blaring, and 5,000 half-swacked voices were roaring (laughs) accompaniment. Half-swacked. That is my new favorite term for drunk. Hey, Heather, how you feeling? Half-swacked, man. (laughs) The band was blaring, and 5,000 half-swacked voices were roaring in accompaniment. In Munchenstein Hofbrau House, eins, zwei, Gasufa. At Gasufa, everybody <laughs> upped with the mugs and drank each other's health. Hey, Ken, Gasufa. Gasufa. To the wine. Woo! Yeah, uh, so I suppose apologies for my mutilation of the German language. Uh, that was I better than I would have done. I haven't studied German since eighth grade. You studied German in eighth grade? I did. My um, middle school, uh, eighth grade, we did um, what was called uh, exploration. Oh, language exploration. And uh, so in eighth grade, we spent one semester split between um, French, Spanish, and German. And then um, uh, the other semester was split between shop, home ec, and probably like uh, health, maybe some, some sort of art thing. Or it might have been art. I don't remember. But yeah, so I ended up getting like six weeks of German in eighth grade. At Gesufa, everybody upped with the mugs and drank each other's health. Whee! This is what I call a real beer bust, I said approvingly. Arth was waving to a waitress. As in the Lowenbrow tent, a full quart was the smallest amount obtainable. Amazing. A beer later, I said, I don't know if you'll make it or not, Arth. (laughs) Make what? (laughs) All seven tents. Oh. The waitress was on her way by, mugs foaming over their rims. I gestured (laughs) to her for refills. Where are you from, Arth? I asked him in way of making conversation. 2183. Oh, shit. 2183 where? He looked at me, closing one eye to focus better. Oh. He said, well, 2183 South Street, um, New Albuquerque. Ooh. New Albuquerque? Where is that? Arth thought about it and took another long pull at the beer. <laughs> right across the way from old Albuquerque, he said finally. <laughs> Maybe we ought to be getting to the... Holy shit. That's a lot of consonants in a row. Awesome. Fucking German. Shorebrow tent. Shorebrow. Well, also, it's a drunk man pronouncing it, so... Maybe we ought to be getting to the shorebrow tent. Maybe we ought to eat something first, yeah. I said. <laughs> I say pretzel time. I'm beginning to feel this. 
We could uh, get some of that barbecued ox. Mm. Arth closed his eyes in pain. Vegetarian, he said, could possibly eat meat. Barbarous. Uh huh. Uh-oh. Well, we need some nourishment, I said. Pretzels, carb it up. There's supposed to be considerable nourishment in beer. <laughs> okay, Colonial Williamsburg man. <laughs> I don't need to eat anything, and the water's bad. I will oh, eat Lord. my beer. <laughs> I'll eat my beer. There's supposed to be considerable nourishment in beer. That made sense. <laughs> I yelled, Fräulein! Oh, no. Zwei new beer. Somewhere along in here, the fog rolled in. When it rolled out again, I found myself closing one eye, the better to read the lettering on my earthenware mug. <laughs> it read, Augustine Brow. Somehow, we'd evidently navigated from one tent to another. Arth was saying, where's your hotel? (laughs) That seemed like a good question. I thought about it for a while. Finally, I said, haven't got one. Town's jam-packed. Left my bag at the Bonhoeff. I don't think we'll ever make it, Arth. How many we got to go? Lost track, Arth said. <laughs> you come home with me. Uh-oh. <laughs> we drank to that, and the fog rolled in again. Oh, my God. This is the best story. <laughs> when the fog rolled out, it was daylight. Bright. Uh. Glaring. Awful Daylight. I was sprawled, complete with clothes, on one of twin beds. On the other bed, also completely clothed, (laughs) was Arth. That sun was too much. I'm just going to point out, he's making an awful big deal about the fact that they They were both clothed. They still had their clothes on, which means they totally made out. Which means they were both completely naked. They were buck-ass naked, but because it's the 1950s... And they were sharing a twin bed. Uh, well, no, there were probably two twin beds because it was the 50s. There were probably two twin but beds. But they were both asleep in I'm it. saying they were sharing a twin bed. And they were both buck-ass naked. Yep. Nothing actually happened. They just got Because naked. neither one was sober enough well, to get it up. Well, and not like... They didn't even... I'm surprised they made it back to begin with, but like... Yeah. That sun was too much. I stumbled up from the bed, staggered to the window, and fumbled around for a blind or curtain. There was none. Uh. Behind me, a voice said in horror, Who? How? Oh, what? Oh, where'd you come from? <laughs> I got, oh, Arf. <laughs> I got a quick impression, looking out the window, that the Germans were certainly the most modern, futuristic people in the world, but I couldn't stand the light. Where's the shade? I moaned. Arth did something, and the window went opaque. Oh. Oh. Whoa. That's quite a gadget, I groaned. If I didn't feel so lousy, I'd appreciate it. 
Arth was sitting on the edge of the bed, holding his bald head in his hands. I remember now, he sorrowed. <laughs> you didn't have a hotel. What a stupidity. I'll be phased. Phased all the way down. <gasps> you haven't got a handful of aspirin, have you? I asked him. Just a minute. Arth said, staggering erect and heading for... <laughs> See, he wouldn't have known that if he was wearing clothes. <laughs> staggering erect. It's just morning wood, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and heading for what undoubtedly was a bathroom. Stay where you are. Don't move. Don't touch anything. All right, I told him plaintively. I'm clean. I won't mess up the place. All I've got is a hangover, not lice. <laughs> Arth was gone. He came back in two or three minutes, box of pills in hand. Here, take one of these. I took a pill, followed it with a glass of water, Uh-oh. and went out like a light. I was going to say, that pill was not aspirin. That was that was the equivalent of the men in black, like, look at this red light. Yep. Huh? <laughs> Arth was shaking my arm. Want another mess? The band was blaring, and 5,000 half-swacked voices were roaring accompaniment. In Munchenstedt ein Hofbrauhaus ein zwei Gesoffa. Oh no, he took At a Gesoffa, bill. Everybody upped with their king-size mugs and drank each other's health. My head was killing me. This is where I came in, or something, I groaned. Arth said, that was last night. He looked at me over the rim of his beer mug. Uh Uh-oh. Something somewhere was wrong, but I didn't care. I finished my mass and then remembered, I've got to get my bag. Oh, my head. Where did we spend last night? Arth said, and his voice sounded cautious, At my hotel. Don't you remember? Not very well, I admitted. I feel lousy. I must have dimmed out. Oh, I've got to go to the Banhof and get my luggage. Arth didn't put up an argument on that. He said goodbye, and I could feel him watching me as I pushed through the tables on the way out. At the Bonhof, they could do me no good. There were no hotel rooms available in Munich. The head was getting worse by the minute. The fact that they'd somehow managed to lose my bag didn't help. I worked on that project for at least a couple of hours. Not only wasn't the bag at the luggage checking station, but the attendant there evidently couldn't make heads nor tails of the check receipt. He didn't speak English, and my high school German was (laughs) inadequate, especially accompanied by a blockbusting hangover. I didn't get anywhere tearing my hair and complaining from one end of the Bonhof to the other. I drew a blank on the bag. And the head was getting worse by the minute. 
I was bleeding to death through the eyes, and instead of butterflies, I had bats in my stomach. Believe oh, me, damn. nobody should drink a gallon or more of Marzenbrau. We have all been in this situation <laughs> where you're like, no. I decided the hell with it. I took a cab to the airport, presented my return ticket, told them I wanted to leave on the first obtainable plane to New York. I'd spent two days at the Oktoberfest, and I'd had it. <laughs> I got more gruff there. Something was wrong with the ticket. Wrong date or some such. But they fixed that up. I never was clear on what was fouled up. Some clerk's error, evidently. The trip back was as uninteresting as the one over. As the hangover began to wear off a little, I was almost sorry I hadn't been able to stay. If I'd only been able to get a room, I would have stayed, I told myself. From Idlewild, I came directly to the office rather than going to my apartment. I figured I might as well check in with Betty. I opened the door, and there I found Mr. Oyster sitting in the chair he had been occupying four or was it five days before. When I'd left, I'd lost track of the time. I said to him, glad you're here, sir. I can report. Uh, what was it you came for? Impatient to hear if I had had any results? My mind was spinning like a whirling dervish in a revolving door. I'd spent a wad of his money and had nothing I could think of to show for it. Nothing but the last stages of a granddaddy hangover. Holy shit. Came for, Mr. Oyster snorted. I'm merely waiting for your girl to make out my receipt. I... Thought you'd already left. You'll miss your plane, Betty said. There was suddenly a double dip of ice cream in my stomach. I walked over to my desk and looked down at the calendar. Mr. Oyster was saying something to the effect that if I didn't leave today, it would have to be tomorrow, that he hadn't ponied up that thousand dollars advance for anything less than immediate service. Stuffing his receipt in his wallet, he fussed his way to the door. I said to Betty, hopefully, I suppose you haven't changed this calendar since I left. Betty said, what's the matter with you? You look funny. How did your clothes get so must? You tore the top sheet off the calendar yourself not half an hour ago, just before the marble-missing client came in, she added irrelevantly. Time travelers yet. I tried just once more. Uh, when did you first see Mr. Oyster? Uh, never saw him before in my life, she said. Not until he came in this morning. <gasps> this morning, I said weakly. While Betty stared at me as though it was me that needed candling by a head shrinker preparatory to being sent off to a pressure cooker, oh. I fished in my pocket for my wallet, counted the contents, and winced at the pathetic remains of the thousand. I said pleadingly, Betty, listen, how long ago did I go out that door on my way to the airport? 
you've been acting sick all morning. You went out that door about ten minutes ago, were gone about three minutes, and then came back. <gasps> See here, Mr. Oyster said, interrupting Simon's story. Did you say this was supposed to be amusing, young man? I don't find it so. In fact, I believe I am being ridiculed. Simon shrugged, put one hand to his forehead, and said, That's only the first chapter. There are two more. Oh, my God. I'm not interested in more, Mr. Oyster said. I suppose your point was to show me how ridiculous the whole idea actually is. Very well, you've done it, confound it. However, I suppose your time, even when spent in this manner, has some value. Here's fifty dollars. And good day, sir. Well, that's all Betty wanted. (laughs) He slammed the door after him as he left. Simon winced at the noise, took the aspirin bottle from its drawer, took two, washed them down with water from the desk carafe. Betty looked at him admiringly came to her feet, crossed over, and took up the fifty dollars. Week's wages, she said. I suppose that's one way of taking care of a crackpot, but I'm surprised you didn't take his money and enjoy that vacation you've been yearning about. I did, Simon groaned. Three times. Betty stared at him. You mean... Simon nodded, miserably. She said, But Simon, $50,000 bonus. If that story was true, you should have gone back again to Munich. If there was one time traveler, there might have been... I keep telling you, Simon said bitterly. I went back there three three times. There were hundreds of them, probably thousands. He took a deep breath. Listen, (gasps) we're just going to have to forget about it. They're not going to stand for the space-time continuum track being altered. If something comes up that looks like it might result in the track being changed, they set you right back at the beginning and let things start for you all over again. They just can't allow anything to come back from the future and change the past. Oh my god, it is it is the men in black thing. You mean Betty was suddenly furious with him. You've given up? This is the biggest thing. Why fifty thousand dollars is nothing. The future just think, Simon said wearily. There's just one thing you can bring back with you from the future. A hangover. <laughs> compounded of a gallon or so of Marsenbrau. What's more, you can pile one on top of the other and another on top of that. He shuddered. If you think I'm going to take another crack at this merry-go-round and pile a fourth hangover on top of the three I'm already nursing all at once, you can think again.
My God, that was amazing. That might genuinely be my favorite story we have read so far. You're welcome. That was goddamn banana cakes. That was amazing. Oh, good oh, lord. I'm so glad I stumbled across that. Like, that was And it just wild. happens to be in public domain because of when it was published and like... Oh my god. And then I, all I knew, all I knew about it is that it was about time travel. And I was like, well, Ken will like that because he introduced me to Doctor Who and, and then I found out he was the first person to write a, like, a fan fiction of Star Trek. And I went, well, those are two of Ken's favorite things, so... All right, Lady Maxine, you won me over. <laughs> I am on board. Well, um, Lady Maxine has many other stories. Wow. We'll come back. <laughs> that was... Amazing. Fabulous. Yeah, that, that... Not only was it a fantastic story, but it, like, uh, it brought up a lot of, like things like memories and then i'm like oh maybe i've time traveled because like many times you were there i was like i remember oktoberfest have i been to oktoberfest with my parents or have i been there in the future and then my my memory was i would also like to point out that there have definitely been a couple of occasions admittedly all of them since i turned 30 um where i go drinking and I wake up the next morning feeling like I am hungover well beyond what one night of drinking should account for. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So this brings me to my question for this post story yeah. portion of the show. Hey, listener. How you doing? How you doing? Did, did you, you like enjoy that? that? Did you like that one? We did. So what I want to hear from you is your stories about a time that... Maybe you think you might have run into a time traveler. By has it happened view, to you? By pure view, virtue now of, of did you have the worst un, hangover of, of just your life? Just unreasonable hangover, or other things. Yeah, like if if you think you might have run into a time traveler because of like you, wicked crazy deja vu, cool, whatever, or um, displaced time, like you just like time disappeared but, or but especially if it happens to be because of the hangover that time refuses to forget um that'd be cool too oh there's been many a hawkeye football is, game that i have definitely time traveled at then <laughs> why is it always yesterday <laughs> why is it always yesterday and all the good beer <laughs> Well, now we're definitely going to go to Oktoberfest. Um, yeah. If our Patreons want, if you want to start becoming a Patreon to like fund our trip to Oktoberfest for a year from now, we will go and find time travelers for you guys. I guarantee, hundred <laughs> percent guarantee that I will take a picture of and post said picture of a time traveler. Absolutely. So become a patron, or at least you know buy us a cup of coffee, or uh, just answer our question. Yeah. What's your favorite? Uh, favorite hango uh time traveling quotes quotes story yeah um so if you've made it this far congratulations you have made it far enough to reach the secret passcode of the week which is let's kill hitler let's kill hitler absolutely i i love it i mean yes (laughs) 
I hope we get on some government list because we get so many messages that say, let's, let's kill, kill Hitler. Hitler. Uh, I mean, let's kill anything. I mean, I Fair feel enough, like get you on kind of government list, but... I feel like let's kill Hitler would probably Put get you on, on like the good list, the right government list. It's like, oh, we but like the thing these is, people. The thing is, it's not going to be those messages that get us on the government list because the sex fly is on the wall right behind your head <laughs> and it's reporting back to the government as we speak. Hey, hey, sex fly, go away. <laughs> so, uh, I think that's it. Yeah, um, that was amazing. Congratulations on making it this far. Please tell five friends if you liked it. Please tell five friends if you didn't. <laughs> um, no, don't tell five friends if you didn't. If you didn't like it, tell five friends that you did like it. <laughs> well, tell five friends that... Tell five people that you hate about this podcast if you didn't like this episode. Or s- tell five um, nerds because clearly they'll, they'll love it. <laughs> um, fucking nerds. <laughs> Goddamn, Yay, nerds. Goddamn commie nerds. Commie nerds. Socialist <laughs> nerds. Tell um, all your socialist nerd friends about Campfire Classics podcast. Yeah. Um, follow us on all the social medias. Yep. Like, subscribe, do the thing. We will respond if you send us messages. Um, do it. Tell us you're ready to go kill Hitler. Yeah. And let's let's start the movement for time travel. What do we want? Time, Time travel. travel. When do we want it? Yesterday. That's irrelevant. <laughs> and I'm broken. Oh, that one got you. All right. <laughs> I thought I was being clever, and then you were much more clever. That's usually um, the case, though. <laughs> So, uh, until last week. Until, it doesn't matter. (laughs) This has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Where we're going, we don't need roads. When this baby hits 88 miles an hour, you're going to see some serious shit. (laughs) 